I just need to move the signpost for a moment. It's, uh, otherwise, if I flap my arms around, it's, uh, something will be taking off. Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you again from from here. For those who are visitors, I'm Michael. I'm one of the elders of the church here, and uh, I've been uh, volunteered in to share in some of the preaching of this of this series. We're going through the Bible, the big picture, trying to get the whole view of what the Scriptures say about God's plan of salvation, how it all fits together. You know, we so often take little bits and little bits. How does it all fit in? And uh, last week, uh, Peter, our senior minister, was dealing with the judges, and he described this as being a rather depressing time because of all its ups and downs. The people obeyed and then they disobeyed, and uh, we had this constant backwards and forwards. Will they serve God or, or won't they? But we're coming uh, today to um, a little romantic story. You know, we all love a romance, don't we? And we've got this little picture of Ruth. Well, that's the title of the book, but it actually starts with other people, and we'll be exploring that uh, in, in, in these next few moments. So here we have the story of Ruth, and you can just read it as a short story, and... Uh, And and that's it. But where does it fit in to where we are today and God's great plan of salvation? So let's just say, well, who's this? Is he on the screen yet? Who's that? Oh, no one knows. Well, Mervyn knows up in the balcony. Yes, he knows who it is uh, because it is a guy called the Reverend John Glass. Who's he? Well, he's the superintendent of the Elim Church of Great Britain. Well, he is until May. He's retiring in May. Someone else takes over. And a little while back, he was actually preaching in a series of meetings at the Elim Conference in Prestatyn in North Wales. And he started off with the main guy of the Ruth story, a man by the name of Elimelech. And John Glass just looked out at the congregation and he said, I think I'd like to have been called Elimelech because then I would be Elim for short, you know. (laughs) So the head of the Elim church being called Elimelech. Well, that's a nice little story, isn't it? But let's look at who's who in the Bible story of Ruth. We have Elimelech. He didn't maybe look quite like the guy on the picture just then, John Glass, but there he is, Elimelech. We have his wife, Naomi. We have their two sons, Marlon and Killian. And then these two sons got married, and one married Ruth, the other named Orpah. And in the very first few verses of the first chapter of the book of Ruth, we find that all three men have died. And Naomi renames herself Mara. And then later on in the book, in chapter 2, we have a guy called Boaz and someone else who doesn't have a name, an unnamed kinsman redeemer. So, 
there we have those are the main characters in the story and we'll try and unpack something about each of these people so who's who now what about where is where that's important as well because basically uh, these this family uh, lives uh, in Israel in Bethlehem but a famine drives Elimelech to another country and they settle there in Moab and you'll see that there on the right hand side so not far away perhaps but very different to what they were used to and they settle here and they find food but tragedy strikes because the, some of the family the men of the family die and through several twists and turns they re- the survivors return to Israel and Boaz comes onto the scene and it ends with a family tree which is very important but you know you've just got to wait a minute or two 30 minutes perhaps to see what happens okay so how does this work out you're going where well was it right to go to Moab was it the mother of all bad moves you see Bethlehem what do we think of with Bethlehem you know go back to Christmas a little town of Bethlehem how still we see thee lie yes it's that Christmas story Bethlehem and it means the house of bread or the house of plenty that's the meaning of the of the word of the town Bethlehem but suddenly here in the book of Ruth in the time of the judges famine has struck there is no food there is no bread there is no plenty and so Elimelech and uh, Naomi his wife they decide that they are going to go to Moab oh so what you say it's only a few miles down the road it's just round the corner from the Dead Sea ah Moab was not the place to go for any Israelite was it the mother of all bad moves there was no love lost between them because when you turn back for example to uh, the book of Deuteronomy and if you want to follow some of these verses I should have uh, suggested that you ask for a Bible maybe even now if you want a Bible just uh, raise your hand and uh, someone will get one for you but if you go to Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even down to the tenth generation why for they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt and you'll find the whole story in Numbers in the book of Numbers chapter 22 I'm not going to turn into Numbers 22 just write it down and read it yourself later when it's all about Balaam and Barak and all sorts of people but the basic thing is Moab did not welcome the Israelites passing through and international strife is still with us today every time we turn on the television news there is some something going on which is nation against nation 
And the tragedy of that isn't just fresh and new from 1980 onwards or from 1995 onwards. It's right back here in the Old Testament in the time of the judges and it seems to persist. And we, as Christians, of course, we want to pray about it. But you see, so much of this strife is centred in human selfishness and in human pride. Where did it all start? Well, we can go right back to Genesis chapter 11, when humankind, just going out from the creation time, or not long after, they moved to a place called Sinai, and they said, come on, we can make bricks, we can build this tower, and they show how great man is. How great we are. That's their song. Not what uh, Billy Graham would have sung or George Beverly Shea, How Great Thou Art. How great we are. And they build, or they start building this tower because they don't want to be scattered. And Genesis chapter 11 tells us that God sees their human pride and their selfishness and how this will destroy his plan for the nations. And so they are scattered and confused. And really, that's how all that strife comes about. You know, we like to be proud of our nation, don't we? We like to be proud of our nationality. Each of us, whether, well, you know, sometimes I will call myself British because that's, I'm a British person. But sometimes I'm proud to be English rather than say Welsh or Scottish or Irish because you know, there are different characteristics, aren't there? And these days we can tell jokes about it, or sometimes we can, and if it's friendly kind of joke and supportive and just humorous, that's great. But you know, sometimes it's strife and strife and anger and a pride, and it's biting away at what we are as humans made in the image of God. But it isn't God's plan, is it? You know, you're, in the, you're there in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. You turn your page in the Bible to Genesis chapter 12 and there we have Abraham, or Abram as he was called at that moment, and God's promise to him. Abraham, this person who had been called out of his original nation, is wandering across the pathways of that old world, and he is told by God, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, or, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You know, this is a marvellous promise of what God wants to do. Although the nations have been split up because of human pride, God wants to bless every, 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 every nation. That is what God wants to do. And he is using Abraham, this man of faith, to begin that process. 
And in some ways in these past weeks we have been through that process in our studies here on, on, on Sundays. And here we're coming into this book of Ruth and we're seeing these nations in, con- in conflict. Israel, Moab, they wouldn't speak to each other. Was it the mother of all bad moves for Elimelech and his family to go there? Well, we shall see how the story unfolds. But you know, God wants to bless our nation. Was it the 20th century? One of the worst, if not the worst so far for war and strife? I believe so. But, you know, we have to go right to the other end of the Bible, to Revelation. And God's promise there, Revelation in chapter 22 and 21. And there we find this prophecy that John has in his vision of a new Jerusalem. And in it, in that new Jerusalem, in Revelation 22, verse 2, there is the tree of life which bears fruit and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Don't we just need that? We need the healing of the nations. It seems to me that here from Scripture, if that tree is there in the New Jerusalem, healing of the nations will not be fully formed until that new age comes in. But that doesn't stop us praying for the healing of the nations. The pride of man may fight against it, but we want God's promise to Abraham to be fulfilled to bless all the nations. I guess the Lord's Prayer is the answer, isn't it? We prayed that earlier in the service when we prayed, Lord, let your kingdom come. That's how we should pray. God wants to bless each and every nation. You know, there are nations which we think, oh yeah, that's a good nation. There are certain nations where, you know, things are going well. They're progressing. They seem to be good people. They send their tourists over here and that's nice. And there are other nations where we think, what on earth is going on? We don't understand the culture. We don't understand why they're fighting. We don't understand all the issues. And we can't bear it when that name of that nation is mentioned on the, in the news. God wants to bless each nation. Just in your mind at the moment. Can you bear to think of a nation's name which makes you shudder? Think of that name and just say in your mind, God, will you bless that nation and make good come heal the pride of man to end the strife let your kingdom come oh how we need to pray for our nations in this in this world so Moab this isn't just a place to go is it it speaks to us widely and largely about national strife today. But then, let's move on, because Elimelech and Naomi, they move on, and they come into Moab. And then, you're marrying who? 
Well, these two boys, Marlon and Killian, they decide that they are going to marry into the local community. You're marrying who? Here are these two young Jewish men. What's happened? They are marrying. Are they marrying outside the faith? Were they right to do so? Were they settling into this place too well? Some in their day would have said so. Some would have said, oh, how dare you? You know, you're supposed to marry within your own tribe, within your own nation. Were they denying their trust in God? It isn't always easy, is it, in the matters of the heart to know what is going on. Those difficult decisions. You see, Elimelech had died, Naomi's husband, and she was left with her two sons and they married Moabite women, the story tells us. You see, sometimes it's very difficult to keep ourselves in line with Scripture teaching, isn't it? And sometimes we have to interpret it and apply it to our own situation. There are places, for example, in 2 Corinthians 6, where the Scripture says, come out from among them and be separate. Sometimes there's a call to separation from worldly things, from things that don't involve us as the people of God. And yet that thought has been taken to extremes by some. Some Christians have kind of drawn the robes around them or walked on the other side of the street from anyone. And there's no involvement with anyone at all apart from other Christians. (coughs) Nevertheless, how did the church grow in the Acts of the Apostles? Some of us have been studying Acts in our home group meetings and we've seen time and time again how the church in those early Acts days was reaching out and it wasn't afraid to be in touch with all manner of people. How did did the church grow? Because Christians reached out to non-Christians and communicated the gospel to them. How are all the nations of the earth to be blessed? as Abraham, the promise to Abraham was, because we go out and communicate. Scripture has also the verses in Jeremiah, in the exile, where those Jews in exile were told by the Lord to marry and settle and pray for the prosperity of this Gentile host nation. Even though it does not honour God, they were to settle and make themselves known there. Yes, it's difficult, isn't it? Sometimes we think we've got to be separate. You know, we've got to be exclusive. We are Christians. We don't mix with this, that, or the other. And other times we find the Scripture telling us, settle and be surrounded in in other ways. I think it comes down to something that we find in Psalm 1, for example. In Psalm 1, where we are told that the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked is blessed. He does not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. You sense a progression there, don't you? Not walking, not sitting, not standing. see... 
if, if you're walking along, it's not easy, that easy to have a conversation, isn't it? You're kind of half talk, talking over your shoulder. And so if you want a deeper conversation, you stand and you, you're face to face. And then finally, well, you know, you go into the coffee shop and you sit and have a cup of coffee. <laughs> and you see the progression there. And what the scripture is telling us is, is we need to be careful how we communicate. But we don't buy into the fact that some are scoffers, that some are non-believers. We may want to, of course we want to witness, we want to be involved in every aspect of life, but we don't buy in to ungodly uh, philosophy of life. Who are you marrying? Well, these two young men, they married Ruth and Orpah, these two Moabite girls. Were they betraying their nation? Were they betraying their faith? Some would have said yes. But wait. You see, that doesn't end the story, does it? You see, because God is at work through their decisions, through their history. God is is still sketching out his big picture. Friends, who do we mix with? As many as possible, that's good. But we need to keep the faith that's delivered to the saints. Because the story now has sadness. You're going where? Yeah, I'm asking that question again. You're going where? And now the story is on the other foot. Because here we are in Moab, and there Elimelech has died, and time passes by in the story of Ruth, and we're still just in chapter 1, and they're there for about 10 years, and we're told Marlon and Killian, the two sons, they also died. And so Naomi and her two daughters-in-law are all now widows. Who will provide for them? There are no children of these marriages, it seems. So, what of the future? Life will be difficult for them. The only bit of good news is that the famine in, back in Israel, in Bethlehem, is now over. The Lord has provided, Ruth here, um, Naomi here. The house of bread is once again the house of bread and of plenty. And so Naomi sets off and she has decided that she's going to return to her homeland. It's at least 10 years that she's been there, probably more than that. Could have been 10, um, 15, 20 perhaps. And she sets off with her two Moabite daughters-in-law following in her footsteps. And now the situation is reversed. I wonder if those other Moabite people said to Ruth and Orpah, you're going where? You're going to Israel? We never speak to them. They'll hate you. You'll never fit in. They've only got one God. That can't be enough, can it? <laughs> However many other gods that the Moabites had. But the two girls are determined and set off. And then we have that beautiful but sometimes sad dialogue between Ruth and Naomi and Orpah. 
and we find they wept. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Yes, because Naomi is quite clear to these two girls as to what the future holds. She cannot have children anymore, or even if she could, it just, you know, they, they couldn't wait for these babies to grow up to become husbands uh, for them. It just would not work, would it? And Orpah listens and kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. You're going where? Israel? Yes. Ruth makes that loving choice. You know, a similar choice faces all of us when we're challenged to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we want the blessings that God's people enjoy. And we are promised them. As per Genesis 12, that promise to Abraham, every nation will be blessed. That includes the people within it. That includes you and I. But you see, we've got to make a choice. Which land do we dwell in? Do we walk with the scoffers, as in like Psalm 1, or do we walk with the redeemed? Do we go with Orpah so far and then decide we're going to stay back there in Moab, or do we take Ruth's choice and say, I am going the way of faith? That choice is always there, it even came at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't it? Jesus hung on the centre cross on Calvary's mountain. Either side of him were two thieves and they mocked him until one had a change of heart and said, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus in his pain and agony, turned to that thief and said, Today you will be with me in paradise. We don't know what happened to the other thief, whether he did confess Christ or not. It seems not. But you see, each of us has that kind of choice. Where are we going? You're going where? God's way? See those, that signpost? The what-if way? The if-only way? Or God's way? And it's that other question again, isn't it? You're marrying who? Yes, we're asking that question a second time as well. Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Israel at harvest time. And Naomi has the weight of the world on her shoulders. Call me Mara, she says. Mara means bitterness. She felt it all. She had lost pretty well everything. She'd lost her husband. She'd lost her two sons in that foreign land. 
I suspect also she had lost face by going to this foreign land in the first place. Welcome and loved though she was on her return, she felt no future. Was it again a bad move? She'd fled the emptiness of the house of bread only to return with emotional emptiness. And she says that she is empty inside. There's plenty of bread around. The harvest is being harvested in. The barley harvest is right there as they return. So there's plenty. And yet she says, I am bitter. I am empty. She is sad within. But you see, for Naomi now, she calls herself Mara, But do you know, that is the only mention of that name in the whole book of Ruth. Everyone else still calls her Naomi. The author of the book still calls her Naomi. You see, it is time for her to move on and be blessed. Another little M-O-A-B there. Move on and be blessed. The law does not want us to live in bitterness either. The bitterness, yes, we go through difficult times, don't we? We go through times when we don't know how we will cope with the pressures of life. But the story of Ruth teaches us that in God's big picture, he is always at work sketching out future events. And he wants to bless our lives along with all the nations. And it is time to move on and be blessed. The bitterness doesn't stick. That's what we need. We need that kind of Teflon faith where bitterness doesn't stick. We can move on and be blessed. And so there begins a love story Take time to read the book of Ruth. You know, it's only four short chapters. Sometime this afternoon, perhaps, just take it and read it through like you would read a novel. Only because it's a true novel. But read it. And just get the flow of the love story. There's something marvellous about it. And in it, Boaz, we find, is the new hero. Through the unfolding story, he shows kindness to Naomi and Ruth, in spite of the fact that Naomi had wandered away all those years before, and the fact that Ruth was a foreigner, this Moabitess, he takes loving, gracious steps to ensure sufficient provision is given to Naomi and Ruth. As you read the story, you find Boaz so much of a hero so much of a loving character, a noble character. And in this way, he is actually prefiguring the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. He too, is well, he's more than a hero, he's our Saviour. But Jesus himself in earthly ministry spoke to, healed and blessed those who were at the end of their tether. Jairus, whose daughter was sick. Just plucking an example out of the gospel story. 
He's at the end of his tether. His daughter is dying. And before Jesus can come, his daughter has died. And he, Jesus comes alongside and walks with him and raises his daughter back to life. Most of all, the love of Jesus for his people led him to give his life for us on the cross. The Apostle Paul paints a wonderful picture of this in Ephesians chapter 2. And if we turn across to Ephesians 2, we'll find there that even those of us who are far from God can be and should be included. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2, Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see, we weren't the people of God, were we? We weren't born into the Jewish nation. We were just these ordinary Gentile people. But suddenly the, the people of God has branched out to include all nations. Just as God said to Abraham right back there centuries ago in Genesis 12. And it's all knitting together. And Paul says here, we are no longer foreigners and aliens. You know, do we feel foreigner? Do we feel alien to the things of God? There's no need to, because God wants to include us. And all that hatred, if we have shaken our fist in the, our fist in the face of God, that can be healed and cured. Because salvation can come to this household, and God can bless us. We are no longer foreigners. We are no longer aliens. God says, you are welcome. That's the marvellous thing to all of us. You know, there's so much racial strife where people aren't welcome or only half welcome at the moment. God says, you are welcome. That's marvellous. And here comes Boaz, this kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. And Naomi... Ruth's mother-in-law sees, oh, here is the answer to our particular situation. The future could be well set up. And Boaz seems to be interested. But he says to, to Ruth, who has come to the stone threshing floor uh, in part of the, book of, the, of, of the book of Ruth there in the harvest time, Boaz says, well, actually... There's someone else who's a closer redeemer than I am. There's another person who ought to really take on the estate of Elimelech and Naomi and the family line. We'll have to see what he says about it. <laughs> He's not named, this guy. This is the anonymous kinsman redeemer. And they sit down in this marketplace where all the city deeds and legal acts are done and although willing actually this unnamed 
kinsman redeemer who should perhaps have taken on the estate of Naomi and married Ruth finds that he cannot. And that's a tremendous picture as well as we look at the big picture of the scriptures. Because you see, when we think about the salvation that Christ has given us, there was another way, in a sense. There was the law, the Ten Commandments, given there on those tablets of stone. And all the later add-ons which the scribes and the Pharisees put onto it, 630 of them. Oh, let's discuss how we can walk a Sabbath day journey. Well, there's two or three ways we can do that, you know. (laughs) And they worked out all these other 630 rules and regulations. But no one could keep it. No one at all. Paul says in the book of Romans, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the sad picture of the world. No matter how good we are, we can't keep it. There was that rich young ruler who ran to Jesus and and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, well, you know the commandments, and named about eight of them. And the young man said, I've kept all these from my youth up. (laughs) Wow, amazing, isn't it? And Jesus looked at him and loved him and then told him to go and sell the riches that he had. You see, there was some selfishness there, perhaps. And the love of money was in the place of love of God. So even he was not so perfect as perhaps he thought he was. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul, righteous man though he was, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a a, a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel and all the rest of it, he says in Romans, I see the good and I want to do it. But the sin that's within me, that drives me on. And there's this tension in his walk with God certainly as a Pharisee. You see, we all hope that the good will outweigh the bad in our lives, don't we? But it doesn't. (laughs) You put it in the balances and it doesn't work. The law cannot help us. The law is that unnamed, anonymous kinsman redeemer who cannot redeem us or save us. So that story of Ruth is a picture of the fact that the law is there. It wants to save us, but it can't. It's anonymous. Jesus comes along and the named Saviour, he is the one who can save us. Just the same as Boaz, this named kinsman redeemer, he is the one who steps in to Ruth's and Naomi's situation. You will call him Jesus, the angel told uh, Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. Boaz is no insignificant figure. He was of the tribe of Judah, and that was a very significant line. A few weeks ago, uh, Jack was preaching about the line of Judah and showed us the family tree and how that all 
flowed down. And the final verses of Ruth uh, show us uh, the family tree, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, and so on and so on. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. Oh, David? Yeah, which one? King David, yes. We'll come to King David later, I think it's next week, yes. And you see, here is God's story linking in. How this story of a family who went to a foreign country, should they have been there? Should they have married into them? They come back so full of bitterness and yet God steps into that whole situation and is painting away busily in his big picture to paint the glory of salvation and fulfill his promises that every nation, even Moab, would know the blessing of God. Because you see, here is King David and who is David's descendant? Well, you turn right over to Matthew chapter 1, that bit of the Christmas story that we skip over so often, and you follow that genealogy through, and there's so many generations, there's 14 generations in the first bit, and in the second bit, and the third bit, and you come to Jesus. Great David's greater son. It's all there. God's big picture. What's the relevance today? Let's end with two little love notes. Boaz isn't just fulfilling his responsibilities as the kinsman redeemer. He clearly loves Ruth. Everyone go, oh. <laughs> That's the nice bit, yes. And it's also great when we turn over to Ephesians 5 for those of us in the church. Ephesians 5.25, the first part says, Husbands, love your wives. Yes. Good. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself, a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Dear friends, you know, sometimes we feel we're not very good Christians. We feel ourselves uh, perhaps a bit like Naomi when she was bitter, or a bit like Paul when he felt he couldn't cope with the pressures of living a holy life. Christ loved the church, that's us, and he gave himself for it. Why? Not just because we could say, ah, because he wants to make us radiant and beautiful and worthy of carrying his name. Christ loved the church. That's the big picture that we get there from Ruth and Boaz. And the other big picture, the other love note, is about Ruth herself. As we've already quoted from it, as Ruth goes back from Moab with Naomi 
And she says there, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I wonder if we've made that kind of commitment to Christ. You see, that commitment foreshadows the step we take to follow Jesus in pilgrimage. See, it's not just a case of a day in our lives saying, oh yeah, I think I'll follow God, and then forgetting about it. It's a walk. It's a way. Not knowing what the future holds, but trusting Jesus for it all. In a moment, our last song will be Jesus, all for Jesus. That's the way we need to go. May God help us this morning as we look at this big picture. Not only to see the big picture just globally for the nations and for the church, but for ourselves. That God is working in your life and even in the down bits, God is still painting a picture that will be beautiful because that's his plan for us. God bless us each one, Dave. I'm going to hand back to yourself as we come to the conclusion of our service this morning.